Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Eternal Student. I am Dan Clark, and today I am joined by no one for this intro. Don't worry. There's more than just me on the episode. But uh, over the past winter sports season... Sean and myself found ourselves a little busy, uh, and I found myself thinking about who would I want to talk to and interview about uh, their situation or what they're up to and what they can share with our audience that is um, useful. And one person came to mind because of his similar interests compared to me. Uh, And that is a guy that is a teacher and a pro wrestler. Two things that don't often go together, but I'm definitely envious of uh, because those are two things that I'm very much interested in. So today on the show, I had a nice little chat with Somebody I went to school with and uh, taught in Mexico with, not at the same time, but uh, we taught at the same university at different times, so we have similar experiences there. His name is Bill Begaman, and uh, he goes by the in-ring name, the revolutionary Bill Williams. He is currently the AFT heavyweight champion and uh, he had some time uh, to carve out of his uh, life just for us to talk to him and and share some of his insights from the world of teaching as well as the world of professional wrestling which some of you might not be fans of and I get that but uh, here on the eternal student It's always good to learn about uh, what other people are into and uh, how those worlds operate. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with the revolutionary Bill Begaman slash Williams here on The Eternal Student. wrestling stuff um as well because that's i mean that's that's what i see of you mostly online right um and i don't know i i always and i always bring it into my class like i i mention it a lot i bring up like i try to make analogies to you know like the monday night wars somehow or explaining (laughs) that to kids or like today i had to explain uh scott hall and like i had to explain the nwo to people and uh i don't know i just i think that i find value in being a fan all these years and not being ashamed of being a fan as a i don't know as an adult maybe finally i think as a kid i think as a kid maybe there was a little more stigma around it but why not like so how old are you i am 33 so I'm 35. So we kind of come from the same generation of wrestling. And like, yeah, I mean, when I was like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, that's when the Monday Night Wars were at their like peak with, you know, Stone Cold and The Rock and Triple and DX and all that on WWF and the NWO and Goldberg and staying on WCW. And so like when I was in high school, wrestling certainly wasn't as cool as it was when you know in in like my junior high years so maybe maybe that's more what it was i don't even think it's so much that like wrestling wasn't cool anymore in or like because we were in high school it was more just like when we were in high school wrestling wasn't as cool as it had been like five six seven years prior yeah and i guess do you think you know in general 
you know, trajectory rise. I, I think now is maybe the closest it's been to where it once was, which is not even, you know, it's never probably going to be like that ever again. But I would say yeah. it's as exciting. It's, it's the most exciting that I've seen since then, probably. Well, and you follow AEW a little bit then, I presume? Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, they're the first company to give WWE a run for their money since WCW in the mid to late 90s there. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool what it's doing for for wrestling. And, I mean, AEW, you look at that audience, I mean, they cater to an adult audience. And so it's it's – and it's, like, very different than – what uh yeah like the wrestling of the mid to late 90s but like i think you're right that like wrestling is kind of and wrestlers will say this now like you hear wrestlers say this around locker rooms and stuff like wrestling's kind of becoming cool again like it's becoming cool to be a wrestling fan again even as like an adult and so um yeah that's awesome what AEW's done for the business yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess, is there, I mean, is there any way that, I'm sure there is, because for me it's definitely true, but is there any way that pro wrestling somehow bleeds into your classroom at all? Well, it doesn't, I would say very rarely am I making a lot of references. I, I mean, that's just I, references, I, but like even like the style of cutting a promo and how you talk in class or how you command an audience or your students attention. Yeah. I mean, I think so. Um, you know, like for, for both teaching and pro wrestling, you're on stage and you're sort of playing like a character. Like, you know, I think you'd agree like as a teacher, your teaching persona is, very much informed by the real human being that you are, but like, it's like a different version of yourself. Like you're wearing a hat that you don't necessarily wear in other arenas of your life. Um, and so wrestling is obviously like that, both on stage, both um, performing for a particular audience. So like that carries over actually a place where I notice it a lot too, which is no longer super applicable, but during a, um, the, the heart of the pandemic, you know, back when everybody everywhere was distance teaching, like some of the videos I was putting together, um, were very much enhanced and, and they were kind of enhancing each other. My, my promos that I would cut for events and for social media and stuff like that. Um, my, my, te my technological skills in cutting those was growing as I was forced to make all these videos for my kids to consume, um, for my, the distance version of my classes and vice versa. Like I, I felt both those things kind of scratching each other's backs during that time in particular. Yeah, definitely. I just, I have this idea that, you know, every, obviously every teacher is different, just like every student is different. And I don't know, I think it's interesting to see how different teachers frame the uh, art of teaching, I guess. Like I, I, I like to think that I try to incorporate those, you know, promo skills that I learned from the rock or stone cold. But I also was a fan of, you know, stand up comedians and, you know, just stand up comedy in general. And so I find myself comparing my students to like a stand up audience. And I try to apply um, you know, or fit in the educational parts into my vision of what I, I think makes sense in teaching. So I, I just wanted to get maybe your, your viewpoint of how you approach the art of teaching or what maybe has influenced it, maybe even outside of, of wrestling. Well, so literally today, it's really funny that you mentioned that because teaching oftentimes is similar to stand-up comedy and you're performing a shtick and you're performing it a number of times throughout a day, perhaps, or a quarter or a semester, given how many times you teach that class. The goal is to kind of make it come off as authentic or spontaneous when, when really it's not. Literally today, I was showing, I'm sure you've seen it, the duck and cover video. Oh, wow. You must be, we must be on the same uh, unit right now. We just talked about yeah. that literally today. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're studying the Cold War. We started it today. 
and we watch like my intro is like I just kind of with very little context show them the duck and cover video and I use that as my you know my hook to get them to, to bring them into our Cold War unit and as we're going through it's like a nine minute video I have all these kind of jokes and lines that I make as as the video is going through when uh um, I think it's Patty and Paul when Paul when he's trying to duck and cover basically rams his head into a brick wall or when Tommy ghost rides his bike off a bridge or when they're the families at the park and they they rip up the the picnic blanket tied into the picnic blanket like I have all these kind of lines that I say as if I'm just doing play-by-play like this is the first time I've seen the video and literally I was walking through the lunchroom and some kids like hey Bagaman when you um when we watched that video today did you did you have your lines planned and I'm like yeah I, I did like how did you know that and I, I don't even know if we got to how I, I don't know if they were talking at a table I'm like oh he said the same thing in our class but it, it was just kind of funny that that kid for in however he did it kind of got like a peek behind the curtain right like I'm putting on this show that I that I put on in the class before him and I'm going to put on in the class after him but for most of the kids it it should feel if I'm doing it well it's um a little more authentic or, or spontaneous, I guess, than maybe it is in reality. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that you have to get good at. Because even just going through the motions twice a day, like I, I often tell my second class how, yeah, sometimes I'm not necessarily looking forward to saying the exact same thing yeah. I just did. And I'm figuring out ways I can mix it up. And usually it you know, once I get into it and I do, you know, the crowd work as they would call it in stand up, it just, it becomes way more fun. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't understand how a comedian could, yeah, do that night after night, that same routine. And even in like in the old days of stand up comedy, it was like that was your routine for your entire career. You know, now they obviously yeah. record a special and then they're like chuck their material and do new stuff. But, Man, I couldn't imagine doing all that material, uh, you know, just constantly. That would be... Well, and like for stand-up comedy, for wrestling, for anything, to at least a certain degree, you're um, regurgitating lines that you've rehearsed. Maybe with, I mean, maybe it's more like bullet points as opposed to lines, but either way, there's some rehearsal that goes into it. The goal and wrestling and teaching and stand-up comedy is all the same it's, it's to make it come off as something that's that's happening spontaneously and authentically in front of you you know the comedians that do it really well you feel like the ideas that are coming out of their mouth are coming into their head almost at that moment even aside from the lines themselves the mannerisms or the inflections in their voice or even their own acting like they're laughing at a joke that just came to them when really that's just part of the delivery you know so yeah, all three of those art forms similar in that fashion, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, I mean that's that's probably the parts of teaching that I enjoy the most. And sometimes I get like when I take a graduate class and I read about how <laughs> outdated the the guy in the front of the class uh, talking to the you know, group is, and how you know it should be student centered. And I'm there's a part of me that's like, but that's my favorite part is the talking <laughs> in front of them. Yeah. Gone are the days I think where you just, you know, lecture at kids for a whole 50 minute period, but I do think part of what a lot of teachers like good teachers do well, at least some days some of the time is being a good performer, storyteller, you know, on stage performer. And so I I think that's an important part of teaching or at least something that can be a, a quality of an effective teacher. So yeah, student centered stuff, but sometimes you got to take the reins of your classroom and, and, and set it up and tell kids what they need to hear, or at least frame it for them. And yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's all a spectrum. So I'm all, I'm all for like student centered learning and teaching, but I think sometimes it's okay to be the star of the show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, even like podcasting is kind of a, a uh, an example that is not necessarily student centered. It's just people talking, and those things get you know gobbled up like nobody's business, and they're hundred percent somehow entertaining for hours on end. I still haven't yeah figured that out, but 
Well, and right before I got on the line with you here, I was listening to um, Dan Barrero. I listened to him basically every single day of the week. And I mean, he's not performing for me specifically. He doesn't know who I am, but you know, I very much feel like I know who he is and enjoy just kind of listening to him and interested not only in what he has to say about sports or politics or whatever his issues talking about, but I'm interested in him, the person I'm interested in his personal life and stuff like that. And that's because he's really good at what he does. And so like, I think we as teachers can, can be that too which isn't to say that's the only thing we should be or that we should be seeking some kind of celebrity status as teachers. But I think part of teaching is getting your kids to buy into you too. And I think when you exercise those um, abilities as a performer or a storyteller, that's where you give kids opportunities to do that. Definitely. Um, And I guess, I don't know, this is kind of switching gears, but going back to in general, why you ended up in the classroom that you're in. Uh, what was it that, I don't know, brought you into the field itself? Of education? Yeah. Um, I just really love all the content that we as social studies teachers get to teach. I'm very interested and passionate about history and politics and geography and learning about different places and cultures and stuff like that. And so actually for a while I'd explored, like originally when I went to Mankato, um, my, my first declared major was a political, was political science. You remember Joe Kunkel? Does that name that, ring a bell? He was yeah. like my favorite professor. The Mono- yeah. He was the Monopoly guy to me. Yeah, he's that mustache. Yeah. Yeah, he's, I can actually like get <laughs> That's what get that's, that that's inspired that, that I think right there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, It was kind of in going, I remember sitting in his office and he handed me a book of careers in political science. And, you know, Senator isn't in there. Certainly you can aspire to to run for office someday, but just a lot of the jobs that were associated with a political science degree weren't necessarily jobs that I felt excited about working towards. And so in just considering what would allow me to do with political science and other and and history and stuff like that in general, that would allow me to exercise my interest in those topics is teach those topics to other people, especially because, as you know, in order to like teach a topic, you have to understand it so much more deeply than just to, to know a topic and succeed in a class on that topic. And so, yeah, I look at the teaching profession as the opportunity to become an expert, to, to get paid, to, to really become an expert on topics that you're curious about or passionate about. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, it's interesting because I'm sure every, I mean, hopefully every social studies teacher is interested in the content. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a content area that a lot of times students haven't been exposed to in an excited way. Like oftentimes I'll have, you know, large groups, if not entire classes of students who will get to my class when they're 11th graders and they are completely jaded and don't think history matters at all. Um, I don't know. What's been, what's been your experience with that? Have you, have you also experienced groups of students that you've had to uh, energize with your, um, what, love for the content? Yeah. And I don't know how successful I always am at that. I mean, a bunch of them just left, just left here an hour ago, but I I, I think you hit on two things there. It's kids who aren't excited about the content and kids who don't see utility in the knowledge that we're imparting on them. And and, and oftentimes both. I, I feel like a lot of kids at the end of the day, and despite my best efforts, will still tell you that on a lot of days, my class is pretty boring. If Definitely, like I wish I could get kids more excited about the stuff that we're learning about. But I think one thing that I have a little more success at at the end of a quarter or semester is that I've gotten kids to make some connections between knowledge about history and how that knowledge can have utility to them as people living in the present. Yeah, I mean, talk about relevance. You're starting the Cold War unit, and of course- Perfect timing, right? That's, I mean, sometimes I often mention this, but it's it's so weird how, and this, 
and maybe it's just because I'm looking for these coincidences, but I'll tell my classes, like, you know what, guys, we are actually the center of the universe because every time we start a topic, there is something that pops off in the world that just gives a nod to like the importance of knowing this piece of information. Um, like we just talked, we were talking about the Suez crisis today and how I was just mentioning, we were starting out by talking about where the Suez Canal was. And of course, half didn't know, but the other half brought up the, remember that ship this past year that got stuck yeah. Yeah. in the Suez Canal? And that was the perfect in- entryway into saying like, well, you see how important it was? Because when that ship got stuck, the whole world trade stopped. That's how important that Suez Canal is. And it was a good, uh, you know, another example of us being the center of the universe that I'd like to bring up. I'm sure it's not true, but I'd like, I'd like to think it <laughs> well, is. Well, yeah, so I, I just finished up teaching the Cold War on like my block class, and we definitely made some Ukraine connections there. I started the Cold War on my skinny class, or the, my skinny class on the Cold War today. The unit that my block class actually started today is the Civil Rights Movement. And if you want to talk about relevance with national events over the last couple of years, my God. And the center of the universe, Minneapolis, quite literally the center of the universe when we talk about whatever racial moment we're currently in. I kind of, I, I like the idea that we're someday the history books will label this as the moment of racial reckoning, you know, this kind of post-George Floyd world um, and, and all the changes that have come with it. Man, if, if, there's, if there's ever been something that I've been able to convince my kids is relevant to their lives and their world right now, teaching about the civil rights movement the last couple of years has been it. Yeah, and that's definitely definitely one that should be getting touched on everywhere. Yeah, back to your point of how like we as history teachers often find ourselves at the center of the universe in the sense that stuff is happening in the world is so connected with these topics that we're trying to teach kids about. And it's nice when we're able to make those connections for them, even when the, it, it stems from some pretty ugly stuff that's happening, be it, you know, George Floyd's murder, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, it's mostly always bad stuff that yeah, <laughs> we're connecting to, but it's, it's relevant for sure. Uh, and, and of course, I mean, for the listening audience, uh, me and Bill's uh, connection is a, I guess, a Mexican connection. Um, we both taught Indeed. at the same high school, El Tec de Monterrey in Irapuato, Mexico. Um, I was there a couple of years before you. You came after me. But I'm interested to hear about uh, what that experience was like for you. I went into it as a non-fluent Spanish speaker. Um, and I think you have a little more, you had a little more Spanish background than me. But... I'm sure, you know, going to a foreign country by yourself to take a job as a teacher is all, I mean, for me, it was definitely life-changing and did a lot for me. Um, So I'm curious how that experience was for you and some of the big takeaways or highlights or kind of major revelations that you had in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, everything you said, I came in as a non-fluent speaker as well. Okay. Knew a lot of vocabulary. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if I came out as a fluent speaker. Like, I still don't know if I, I am would call myself fluent, but like, I've been teaching Spanish immersion and social studies up here in Forest Lake for um, eight years now. So I've got enough ability to be be deemed the most qualified person for that job. Not that there's a whole lot of candidates. <laughs> it is kind of um, crazy how little, yeah. uh, you know, how how much of a lack of bilingual educators there are i mean i think i'm my wife and obviously the other spanish teacher but i'm like one of the only other teachers that can some get a maybe like a seven out of ten for a grade in (laughs) speaking spanish yeah i'm the most qualified candidate but i'm i wouldn't even call myself qualified for the job they're asking me to do so it just goes to show if you have um, talents in an area that a lot of other people don't. It's it's a good um, way to get your stuff in in the door in certain places. Well, quick so, quick story for that. So I thought I came back from Mexico and I got a job in St. Peter here. And 
one day, uh, the administration was looking for a translator, the Spanish teacher at the time. And I foolishly was like, oh, I could probably do that. I know like 10 words. And, uh, boy, I stepped in, uh, some deep mud on that one. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as I got into this meeting, uh, this poor woman was, you know, she was talking pretty fast and then she started crying, making it harder to hear. And I was definitely in over my head trying to explain <laughs> that translation. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I felt proud. I was confident of course, before that. And then reality kind of hit me right in the face, but I was definitely able to, to convey a couple of things. So better than yeah, I would well, have. It's something I found with my own Spanish, especially when you're communicating with people who don't know how, one thing that I feel like I gained from learning Spanish is I'm really good at speaking English to people who don't, who English isn't their first language. And knowing, you know, not, not doing the old, hello, my name is Bill, like the talk louder and slower, but just like knowing, being conscientious of vocab choices and to a certain degree, volume, tone and, and all, all that stuff. Knowing how to speak to someone who's learning a language. When you're speaking Spanish as, as people who aren't native speakers, you and I, and, and the person you're speaking Spanish with isn't conscientious of that, of your limited ability, it can be really hard to, to communicate with that person, you know? And, and so like, I've dealt with that same thing where I've been trying to, and, and, and like, maybe you pick up like 90% of what they say, but like the 10% that you're missing is essential to understanding the, the big takeaway or the 10% that you're missing changes the, the, the whole meaning of what they're getting at. And so 90% is pretty good. But if, if you, if you miss the main point, then, then maybe not. Or, but so yeah, totally had that experience myself. Yeah. Like it's uh it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to think back. I'm sure you I missed, you must've taken Spanish in high school before that. Is that kind of um, the extent I, of it? Not really. <laughs> oh, that, well, Spanish too. There we go. Well, I mean, that's the yeah. same for me. It was not much at all. And now, you know, it's, 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 it's come a long way and boy, what a, what a important skill it is to have in education, especially. And it, you know, it's, I think it would be even cooler if, you know, if they, if there was more, you know, even like language classes offered to educators, um, there's like a, there's, there's a larger, um, Somali student population here. And I don't think we, we have some cultural liaisons, but I, I, uh, I've maybe learned, you know, three phrases. Um, but it makes such a difference in just being able to communicate with those populations of students. hundred percent. And it's so nice, you know, like I've actually got three young men who just joined my class within the last month who arrived from Nicaragua all very, very, very limited in their English, um, but obviously fluent Spanish speakers. And so a teacher like me is a very important person for them in this building because there's not that many adults who speak their language or kids who speak their language. We, we're like, I think, 1% Latino at our school, 1%, 2% Latino. Um, and, and so um, not a ton of peers or adults that they can communicate with. So like for every kid, for, for kids who, um, to be able to come to school and have some, have, have some people that can speak their native tongue. I mean, that's a really like comforting thing to have. And so, yeah, hundred, hundred percent agree with, you know, trying to increase the uh, linguistic diversity of, of staff and students at schools. Yeah. I think once you learn, I mean, there's kind of a general quote that describes this, but like once you, what's the actual quote? The quote is like, once you have reached, I don't know, mastery in one thing, you know, the way in all things or something like that, where it's so much easier once you've, you know, been able to learn a second language. And then that third one becomes a little easier and fourth and yada, yada, yada. But yeah. um, back to the original question though, what else from your experience or life abroad how long, how long were you abroad? Did you teach there? 10 for, months. Okay. So what, like a full school year then, right? Yeah. Um, what were some, what were some things that popped up for you? Um, I mean, one was like, and we kind of touched on this. I don't know if this is makes the podcast when we were talking 
about our American colleague down there, Mike, and being able to communicate some with someone, not only in English, because a lot of our uh, Mexican colleagues down there spoke English, but like in like American, even though that's not a real thing, it, it kind of is. Um, because like down there, you are such a cultural outsider. And like, even with the people who you can communicate with, um, like to be basically um, the only or one of the only Americans, like, like there's plenty of days down there where I was the only American, I, I did not come into contact with a single other American, you know, and I wasn't down there with anyone. I didn't have my family or my um, girlfriend, now wife down there with me at the time. And I had a lot of close friends and I got along with my students and my colleagues and stuff like that. But yeah, there's something about being a cultural outsider that can at times be really lonely, but like, it's something I think that everybody should experience because we're all surrounded by people all the time who are experiencing that themselves. And I think that allows us to have empathy for people in those situations. And that that's one of the, I wouldn't say like that defined my experience down there. Like I was very much accepted. I was very much treated with, with um, kindness and respect by almost everyone that I came across. But still being a cultural outsider is, is one of the first things that comes to mind when I think of the experience of living in Irapuato for 10 months. Yeah. I don't know if you had a similar experience. Or... Well, I mean, some of the things I, that were coming to mind there were, you know, just the daily occurrence of, you know, being stared at by yeah. everyone you walk by. Um, and, you know, if, as my wife, who is, is from Irapuato, explained to me, it's like, oh, they're not like, you know, it's not a negative view because she, she had conveyed that, you know, the general viewpoint of an American in Mexico isn't necessarily a negative one. Um, mm -hmm. so most of the looks were pretty friendly, but it's yeah, all I'm curious. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's, like, what is that? What is that gringo doing walking down this street with a backpack right now? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. What is there, there were definitely some moments like that. Some, um, some sketchy moments, but also, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, it was a good experience, like you said, to just be um, in that situation where you were the minority for sure. Yeah. Because especially as teachers, now I mean, you can apply that to all your students who fit into those different minority groups, and you know, people who haven't had that experience don't maybe know what it's like to sit in a classroom or a meeting where the language, you don't understand anything that's going on. You're just yeah. kind of, you know, either checked out because it's easier to do that when it's a different language being spoken or you're just completely lost. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a definitely a powerful experience if you have, you know, EL students. Um, but yeah, you definitely <laughs> hit the nail on the head when it comes to cultural outside. Another example would be like when you, like even now when I go down there and I go to, you know, order something or talk in Spanish, I know what I said was correct because after I say it, I'll, I'll double check. Like, did I say that right? Because every time I say it and I'm with my wife, um, it's, it's like they don't even, they just look immediately at my wife. I'll say the thing in Spanish <laughs> yeah. and then they'll look to her uh -huh. um, as, as if like she's going to repeat it. And I'm like, did I say that wrong? Yeah. And she's like, no, you didn't. Not at all. I was like, well, that's a weird little quirk. And I'm like, I bet that I'm guessing that happens, you know, in our own culture or when that yeah. happens in our country. Um, so one, so one, moments like that. Yeah. One thing I've noticed is so to connect back to what it means to be a performer as a teacher and have a personality, have a sense of humor or whatever. So like I said, like I kind of, I have a, one of my classes is a Spanish immersion class. I teach U.S. history and Spanish, but my ability to be a performer in that class is so much more limited because as you know, I'm sure you're probably the funniest person in the world when you're speaking in English, but like, it's really hard to carry over those aspects of your personality when you're in your second language. 
Yep. And like, so like if you, if you were to ask like my Mexican friends, I'm sure they'd tell you that I'm really funny, but I'm not funny in the same way to them as I am to like my American friends who may or may not tell you I'm funny. But a lot of the times the, the things that I say in Spanish that like get laughs out of my Mexican friends aren't so much because of like the cleverness or the wittiness of my jokes, but just because of like the way that I choose to say certain things, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, for anyone who's ever had a friend who, who speaks with an accent and sometimes says things in a funny way that just make you go like, you know what they mean, but they, they choose such funny words to say it. That's the kind of sense of humor that that's who I am to a lot of my Mexican friends. I never felt like they were making fun of me. Like I very much was laughing along with them all the time, but it's just, it's funny how acquiring a different language is like kind of acquiring a different personality in a way. Yeah, it's def it's a it's I don't know, it is that is so true. I was literally just talking about this yesterday with some colleagues here about how how hard it is to translate your sense of humor. Um mm -hmm. and I taught when I was at the tech, I taught most of my classes in English. I don't know, is that true for you as well? All my classes in English, yep. Yeah. Um uh, they even they made they made me teach an English language class, which I don't know how good I was at. Um Same. but um, yeah, it's it, even now when I'm, when I'm with my wife and, you know, I'm trying to make her laugh, uh, you know, the, the scent, the, the cultural senses of humor are definitely different. Uh, like what's funny, like what's funny to a Mexican is not necessarily funny to an American and vice versa. Um, yeah. and it's, it is a, it's like a personal struggle as you know, you go from being, yeah, the funny, the funniest guy in the room to, you know, somebody who everyone now thinks is Mr. Serious just because he <laughs> yeah. can't figure out how to like jump in with his like zippy one-liner. Um, well, and so here's another one that always happens to me when I'm teaching. Cause like I teach, I've got first, second, third hour us history and my first and second hour in English, my third hours in Spanish. And one tried and true practice of teaching for any subject is you say the same thing, but like in two or three different ways, right? You, you say something and then basically you say it over again, but you just rearrange the sentence or use different vocabulary or whatever. So I'll be doing that in my first hour class, my second hour class. And then when it comes time to my third hour class, I'll say it once in Spanish. And when I go back again to say it in a different way, I'll realize that I don't know how to say it a different way. And I just end up saying the exact same thing <laughs> literally all over again. My kids are just looking at me like, yeah, like, yeah we, we, you just said exactly that. Um, and so, but it's just one of those things where I don't have, despite now being a Spanish speaker for about a decade, I haven't quite acquired that uh, agility with the language that I can express myself in myriad ways. Yeah, it's a, it's a trip for sure, and it's definitely for me. It's always it's always happening. It'll be interesting to see how I'd I'd, I'd like to see how that affects our our sons and the, to see what if they're able to be humorous in both languages or or not. So um, yeah, that cultural outsider piece, the the battling uh, with yourself to figure out your new personality in that other culture. That's definitely, I can totally relate. A flood of memories are just coming right back to me. Um, I had a feeling this was going to happen because obviously I don't know a whole lot of people who taught in the same fellow white Americans who taught at the same school that I taught at in the middle of Mexico. So when, when you asked me to be on your podcast, I'm like, you know, this, I bet me and Dan could sit there and just kind of, share experiences for like four or five hours i don't know if that'll make like, <laughs> like because like you're what you're one of the few people in um the world that i can think of that has had this really weird unique experience that that i had and so and it's also um, it's strange um, <laughs> that we we were like we were like trains passing in the night for like yeah, the last yeah. <laughs> yeah 20 years or something like that i don't know 20 is yeah, maybe exactly. too much but I feel like I feel like we did. Did we have one class together? I feel like it was like oh. European history with uh, some red bearded uh, history. Carly? Teacher. I don't know. I can't remember the guy's name. It was the only class I took with him. But um, I feel oh like... yeah, he had the yeah yep. 
I, I mean, I had, I forget his name too, but yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a paper on like the division of Berlin and uh, post world, the post world war two world or something like that. But yep. yeah. I, so we had that class together, huh? There, yeah. I think there was uh we, I don't know if you were there, but there was the class where we watched Algeria yeah, revolution, the, the battle of Algiers or something like that. Yeah. It was like a 1960s <laughs> yeah. movie or fifties yeah. movie. Really good movie actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was like our only, and I can remember having some sort of conversation with you at some point. Um, but well, that, I don't, that was before either of us went to Mexico. Yeah. So like we weren't even, you know, we were both didn't even know that we were going to share this unique experience together in, in the future. And we were just kind of fellow aspiring social studies teachers at that time. And then of course, now we're both, you know, back in Minnesota, we're both teaching like the same exact class. With the same exact pacing, it's pretty. Yeah, apparently. it's pretty interesting. Um, and and I guess I'm I'm also interested. Part of so part of this podcast is kind of interesting how I've I've come up. I don't know. I've it's like a way for me to. It's like I pretend to ask questions for the audience, of course, but in reality, they're basically just questions that I want to know the answers to myself. Um, and of course, you have. I don't know, uh, what partnered your teaching career with a indie pro wrestling career. Um, so I'm really interested in how that kind of came about and if that was something you've been doing for a long time, or if it was a, there was a moment where you finally, you know, made that leap into that world, or I'm just kind of curious how that all unfolded for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you lifelong wrestling fan, I don't know. I don't think it's something I thought about in high school all that much, but like certainly in college, like I came out of Mankato and this is what landed me in Irapuato with, with like this, this kind of attitude, like I am going to experience this world. Like I don't want to end up being older in my later years and looking back on life and thinking I didn't do, I didn't try to do, all the cool things that I could possibly do. So like, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to tr- move to Mexico for a year. I'm going to try to be a wrestler. But like when I, when I just got out of Mankato, Mexico wasn't really on my radar yet. Um, wrestling was, but I was really struggling to find a way to break into the business. Like I'd ask around on trying to get trained and stuff like that. I got this one buddy, he's a professional wrestler. Um, you can look them up. Thunderfrog. Thunderfrog was one of my first wrestling friends, Super Thunderfrog. And when I'd ask Super Thunderfrog about like, oh, I, I want to break into the business. Where should I go? He'd say, oh, move here to Chicago and they'll train you or move out to Philly and they'll train you. But uh, I had an anchor because I, right after Mankato, started to do grad school at the U to get my social studies um, master's. And so I wasn't ready to, to give up on that to pursue wrestling. So like, I very much felt like this tension between the stable career that I was chasing, that I was passionate about, but also kind of the childhood dream that I was passionate about. And so long story short, I didn't get trained and I did graduate grad school and as I was graduating, I called up Clark Johnson, who I know you know, and he hooked me up with Tech de Monterrey and, and Irapuato. And, you know, uh, the fall after I graduated, I was living down there and, and teaching. But yeah, when I got back, I got my, my job up here in Forest Lake. And after a year, um, I kind of started to um, kick the can around the wrestling again. Um, I was told there was a um, training facility opening up and Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, called the Academy of Professional Wrestling, uh, um, Academy School of Professional Wrestling. And I got trained there, started when I was 30, um, had my first match when I was 31. And so I'm, I'm about four and a half years in right now to my, my wrestling career. And there's been like, obviously, like a lot of the guys I broke in with are in their 20s, some even like their late teens. Um, and so it's interesting watching them and thinking about what might have been because these guys, they're young, they're single, they have energy, they don't have careers or families or mortgages tying them down. And like some of these guys that I'm training with now are going to be guys you're going to, we're going to see on 
you know, TV someday, headline and major events. I mean, two of them already are, if you know, uh, Dante and Darius Martin, top flight, AEW's one of their top tag teams. But it was also kind of cool to come in as someone who's a little older, a little wiser, maybe not necessarily on wrestling, but just at least had accumulated more life experiences just by the nature of being alive longer and a little more stable economically because I had this career and, and that's an important part of wrestling too. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the short-ish version of, of how I got to where I am now with the teaching wrestling kind of duality there. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you kind of, when you, when you become a teacher, it's, it's re- it really is, and plus a father on top of that, uh, it does become pretty hard to, you know, carve out some of those, um, or at least carve out some time for some of those aspirations you had as a young man. Um, but it, that's, and that's why I think it's important to, you know, specifically highlight you because you've, you've figured out a way to do it. And it's helpful that, you know, historically speaking, Minnesota is actually a pretty, what, pro wrestling friendly territory, or like it was one of the, uh, a part of one of the main territories back in the day. So it, it's, it's really cool just to hear that, you know, it is possible to have that stable career and also have that, you know, that, that childhood flame still going yeah. along with it. Well, I'm very satisfied with the mix. And and like I said, there's still that push pull. Absolutely. My, um, you know, teaching career and my commitment to, to that has limited what I've been able to accomplish as a professional wrestler. And like what I was willing to try to do even in my younger years in pursuit of that dream. But like, those are like the kind of decisions you you have to make because there's a lot that you know we want to do in this world and you can't do everything all at once so you do have to kind of make compromises with with yourself sometimes but yeah I'm pretty I'm pretty satisfied with the compromise that I have right now because I love my I love my teaching job I love that I get to do professional wrestling and hopefully can keep doing professional wrestling I mean I'm 35 but you know, you look at some of the top wrestlers in the in the business right now. They're they're older than I am. They've been doing a lot longer too. They're <laughs> older than I am. So you know, I'd like to think that I could still milk some more some more years out of that and get better and do some cool stuff. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 an interesting. Uh, I mean, it it comes down to that question. You know, asking yourself how what's important first off, and then what how much of that is enough. You know, for some people, you know, a, a deal with, uh, you know, WWE or AEW or even like in teaching, like I'm going to get these accolades as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes people chase those things. And then I feel like th- when they get to them, you know, it maybe it wasn't even it wasn't even worth it. Um, and it, it just it becomes a constant practice of reminding yourself like do what you know maybe this is enough maybe you know being uh you know an indie wrestler you know having a couple matches uh, every weekend that maybe that's enough for me or maybe you know you know I do um I do announcing and I, I announce you know the soccer games I use my uh inner whatever Michael Buffer or Bruce Buffer or <laughs> Justin Roberts or whoever you want in Howard Finkel for a WWF oh, yeah. reference. But you know, there was a time when I was, you know, I was making myself, uh, announce like every possible home game for every possible event. And it just got to a point where it's like, what, what am I, what are you doing here? Like what's, what is enough? And I decided like, okay, just part of that is all I need to really satisfy that portion of my, you know, childhood desire. Um, but it takes a serious conversation with yourself to be like, well, maybe that is enough. You know, what's wrong with just announcing the home soccer games and maybe a football game compromises too. Cause you know, as a fellow dad and husband, you know, that when you leave this job and go home, like us teachers, there's always work we could be doing at home. So how much time do you want to continue to invest in your work and being the best teacher you can be 
at the expense of spending time with your wife and with your kids. And like every time you pick up an announcing gig on the weekend, you're, you're getting to do something that you love. But again, there's, there's like the opportunity cost of, you know, um, staying home with the wife and the, and the, and the family and all that. And so it, it's, I like the serious conversation with yourself and prioritization and really of trying to find out what the right balance is for you in your life to be able to do the things you want to do without having to, I don't know, sacrifice too much in other aspects of your life where you also have passion and dreams and whatever. So, yeah, because I think, I mean, but some people have that conversation with themselves and they come to, you know, a completely different conclusion. They say, oh, I'm going to double down on my announcing or I'm going to just, you know, go ahead and throw in all my free time to professional wrestling instead of making that other choice where it's like what what really matters to me is you know maybe yeah. your family or you know the time with your loved ones um but that's that's something that is a constant theme on on this show which i do with um a fellow educator and he always asks the question what really matters and he he has this exercise where it's just looking at your day or your week and out of all the things you did today, you know, what, which of those things actually did matter to you the most. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good, you know, first step to try and have those bigger, more serious conversations with yourself. Cause those are the conversations that are going to determine, you know, maybe the quality of your life. Well, and like, I would even say for me, it is a balancing act. I don't even, I, I don't think like that's necessarily even what everyone needs to do. Like I mentioned those two bros, Darius and Dante before. I mean, these, these dudes, these, these kids, they're kids to me anyway, like 21 and 22, 22 and 23. I mean, they live, eat and breathe wrestling. They love wrestling. They, they come to shows like local shows when they're just in town, like on their days off. We'll just kind of come to local shows just to get some ring time in before the rest of us go out and perform. It's crazy to me how much they just live, eat, and breathe this business. But that's just because they love wrestling so much. And I admire it to a certain degree. It's not me. Like I can't invest that much of myself in wrestling at this moment in my life. Honestly, I don't know if I could have even invested that much of myself in one thing, even when I was that age in my early 20s. It's just, it's just not in me to be able to commit all my eggs to like a single basket at any moment in my life. But I can also tell you, like those guys, one of the reasons that I have faith that them and, and some of the other guys I see on the local scene are going to become superstars in the wrestling business is because they are so committed to this one single thing. We can all think of athletes or celebrities and other things that, that have that characteristic to them where they just are so committed to this certain craft. And, and that's what made them so great at it. If that's what's for you or for your students too, maybe some of your, some of the students out there, your students, my students have that in them. Again, it comes back to having that serious conversation with yourself and deciding what's important for you, what's what you want out of life, and then trying to get as much of what it is you want as you possibly can. Yeah, I guess that is that's probably the most important first question to start from is what do you actually want out of it? Um, as, as we talk about this and you and you bring up those kids that were, you know, that are into that so deeply, it, it brings me to that question of what is it about uh, wrestling or professional wrestling that really uh, I don't know, spoke to you as a young man. I don't even, you know, I, people ask me why, why do you like that stuff? I'm sure you've been asked that same question. And what is, what is your response to that? Typically? I don't even know. To be honest with you, <laughs> someone just asked me this the other day, but I don't know. I just, I like the performance. I like the characters. I like the drama. I like the storytelling. I like the character arc I, arcs. I like the comebacks. I like the entrances. You know, I like the the uh, the clicks and the the different factions that form and, and when they turn their backs on each other and when they reunite. Like I just love all of it. It's just such a weird, unique little 
niche thing that I don't know. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Like people who don't know pro wrestling when they see what a big deal, like WrestleMania weekend coming up, man, if you could bring someone who was that knew very little about pro wrestling to like rest to Dallas, Texas in a couple weekends and show them what wrestling, how big wrestling is to the people who are in it and follow it. It's, it's kind of a crazy thing. And I feel like there's like a lot of, um, sports industries businesses that are kind of like that you don't realize that this whole community is all around you you just don't know where to look for it wrestling is definitely one of those and so i don't know that's that's the best answer i can give did you ever find any i mean maybe in middle school i'm sure your friends were always doing the crotch chop and the oh yeah little fingers in the air but as you know as you got the wolf pack don't turn your back on the wolf pack right (laughs) don't don't you dare um but as you got older, I mean, that I feel like that crowd probably shrunk. And I mean, I still have a couple of friends where I, you know, send the send a, a screenshot of the inst- various Instagram pages that put out old wrestling memes and things like Love that. Those. But uh, it's it's it, it's I don't know if I ever found anybody outside of that immediate group that I bonded over that with. Did you ever did you ever find an outer circle or was it? Excuse the pun, but just the inner circle that existed for you. <laughs> uh, how, how, what percentage of your kids do you think will get that that reference? Probably zero of them. <laughs> Solid zero percent. Yeah, yeah. maybe one. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, when I think of wrestling, I mostly think of my brothers are the ones who followed it with me, and and then a couple of my friends. But what's crazy about wrestling is when you meet a total stranger. And you, the two of you, like stumble upon this shared passion. I mean, it's it's similar to what's happening with you and me right now. I mean, you you can just go on forever, and it's like something that can be this bonding agent between you and that person because there's like sharing memories and and stories and and takes and and like whatever on on the business now or over the years um, can create an instant instant spark or connection with someone who you like just met. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, uh, as you do those shows, are you a are you a baby face or are you a heel? Depends on on the show. Okay, didn't yeah. I guess you, do you have to choose? You don't have to choose a lane as a character, kind of to stay in for a while. Well, I mean, circuit? like I think some of like the real top guys in the business, like when you become like nationally renowned, you're you're probably. Um, being booked as like a, a face or a heel basically everywhere you're being booked to work but a lot of the places on the independent scene that we're traveling we're performing in front of people who have never seen us before and might not see us again so it's not necessarily telling them a story that over weeks or months it's telling them an eight to ten minute story on that particular night and so you do what you need to do to to tell them the story you're assigned to tell them that night and Maybe next week in a different town, you're going to tell a different group of people a totally different story in which you play a different kind of person, you know? Yeah. And and, and as you were talking about, you know, some of those things that makes this um, sport I, so magical. I, there was a video I, that came out, I don't even, it was probably like 10, maybe five, five, 10 years ago now. It was called uh, Wrestling Isn't Wrestling. Have you ever seen that YouTube video? It no. was done by... Um, well, I think he's directed some major motion pictures. You know who Ivan Reitman is? The guy that directed like Ghostbusters and some of those 80s films? Mm, I've seen Ghostbusters. So he, he, he had a son. Them. His name was Max Reitman. And he made this YouTube video about, you know, it kind of explains what you uh, explain and the fact that it's, it, you know, most people look at it that are outsiders and they don't um, understand that it's more than just, you know, a... Uh, a choreographed fight scene. It's, you know, there's in-ring psychology, there's a, a story arc, um, there is a, a plot, there are characters that have, you know, it's just one big telenovela, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a, uh, yeah, it's such a magical, like you said, niche piece of entertainment that I don't, you know, even though the, the crowds or the people that are in, into it are pretty large, um, I would say that, you know, a lot of people are definitely missing out 
um, on that magic. 100%. Put it this way, though. If you bring someone who's never been, knows very little about pro wrestling to a pro wrestling show, be it like a Monday Night Raw or the Saturday event happening at like your local VFW, they're probably going to have a good time. It's a, it's a fun way to to spend a couple hours of your evening. It's not necessarily always going to convert you into a lifelong fan, but man, when when some people come out to see me wrestle that aren't necessarily wrestling fans, they usually find themselves having a, a, a pretty good time and, and not just for the 10 minutes the 10 to 12 minutes that I happen to be out on stage, but oftentimes they find themselves just as entertained, if not more so by some of the matches of, of wrestlers that they've never heard of before. So yeah, it can can be pretty fun when it's done right. (laughs) They, uh, yeah. When it's done, when you do it right, I can remember I did it wrong. The first time I took (laughs) my new, my new wife, we, we, uh, we got tickets to the first, Russell Palooza at First oh, yeah. Avenue. First, yep, First Avenue. Yep, and it was also yep. a burlesque show at the same oh, time. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I thought if you know, I had a great time, um, and so did a couple other friends I brought. But definitely wasn't the scene um, for my wife to be at. And boy, that was. Uh, I mean, it was. Oh, well, hey, I'm interesting experience. You, you bring you, if you said it was the very first ever Russell Palooza. Yeah. Here's a plug. Um, I'm not on this show, but March 27th, First Avenue, First Wrestling, Wrestlepalooza. Um, bring if you if you want to give your wife another shot. What <laughs> Wrestlepalooza has evolved into over the last decade and change is unbelievable. Like that is the show that first and foremost comes to mind when I think of like shows that I bring non wrestling people to, and they go, I can't believe what a good time I just had. And some of it is like the, it's a variety show. There's the burlesque and there's the band, but man, it's, uh, it's, it's hard not to have a good time. It it was almost like the first one was, it was kind of crazy. Like people were just, were chucking like PBRs (laughs) at the guys wrestling. Um, there was tables, there was ladders, there was chairs. It was, yeah. yeah, it was quite the experience. Um, and I, but I did take her to, uh, I did take her to a little tamer Monday night raw, like, uh, maybe a, a year later at the target center. And that was that she enjoyed that in that show, but it was, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something that I'll never forget is that Palooza uh, moment. But, uh, Hey, it's been, it's been really fun sitting here chatting with you. Um, yeah. Hey, be- before I can, I can sense wrapping up before you go one question i got for you okay wrestling mount rushmore go well my first spot's gonna go to my man stone cold steve austin that guy practically raised me every monday night um he got he got about a two-hour time slot in my brain to teach me some some life lessons so he's on there for sure um yeah i gotta go gotta put the the rock on there as well uh, Rushmore is what five? Is that what that is? Four. Four. Okay. Well, yeah. hmm. Those last two spots. I mean, I was, uh, I was such a fan of HBK. I feel like I'm picking all the 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 easy go tos. No, though that's okay. You can pick the easy ones. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna leave some big people off too. Of course I am, and you, I'm gonna be kicking already, myself. You've, you've already offended at least some people okay. just by the three you mentioned, because that means you know. That means I, I mean that that kind of narrows it down to I, I, a certain even like a certain body type of wrestler because yeah. even like when The Rock was a wrestler he wasn't you know he wasn't the hulking Rock that he is today no he was not um, and that last spot oh the coveted last spot God I guess I'm gonna give it to Brian Danielson or Daniel wow. Bryan. The American he'd Dragon. He'd be on a lot of people's Mount Rushmore. I think a lot of he, – he'd be like a guy that a lot of current pro wrestlers would put on their Mount Rushmore. I think I think I pick him. And, of course, you know, I wish Mount Rushmore had 20 more heads and I could put oh, sure. Mankind and CM Punk and, Uh-oh. you know, all those other – you know, even just like random guys like Ken Shamrock who 
<laughs> I used to imitate as a kid because of his, you know, his in-ring, his, his ring entrance was himself punching himself in the head before yeah. he entered the ring. And I would, I would do that as a kid, <laughs> just like an idiot. But yeah, the, the, the Daniel Bryan or the Brian Danielson pick, he makes it because he was, I think he was the guy that roped me back into it, probably along with CM Punk in my late 20s after I had had such a long, you know, hiatus. hiatus from watching the sport. And now, you know, both of those guys are still doing great things at AEW. Uh-huh. Well, how about you? What is your, what is your Mount Rushmore? I guess we have to um, get that well, from I mean, you. You can see back here. I've got Brett the Hitman Hart. Is that who that is? Chris Jericho and Brett the Hitman Hart. Those were randomly given to me by, by students, but I mean, those are easy. I mean, Bret Hart as a kid, Chris Jericho more as like junior high to adulthood. Um, two of my, my favorites of all time. Um, Stone Cold's got to be on there for me too. And then that four spots, a tough one. I mean, if I just think back to like my favorite wrestlers growing up, like I love the ultimate warrior. I loved Kevin Nash or love Scott Hall. Um, so yeah, one of those guys, that's, that's like kind of the rotating spot, but like my, my bona fides are, are Jericho, Bret Hart, Stone Cold. And then, you know, ask different, different guy every day of the week. If you, if you <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, it is really fun to, you know, watch, you know, even newer people start to itch for that spot or make their rotate make their way into your rotation as you watch some of the new guys or even work with some of those new guys yeah something that i could talk about for hours for sure yeah yeah but it it was it was really it's been a blast connecting with you bill um the revolutionary that's me bill williams (laughs) yeah well thanks for coming on appreciate it yeah man i'm sure we we probably like you know reached the max of the appetite of Oh, yeah. your audience but like I, like I said like when you invited me on I was just excited to just talk with you like as like the podcast because I'm sure you and I could could go on for another three four five six hours here with all the shared interests and experiences that we have 